morning. I know some of you have travelled a distance to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk to this group. And it's really encouraging just to see um, uh, FIEC churches and eldership teams from across the area gathering together. It's thrilling to hear of new initiatives, new church plants, hear of church growth, hear of that growing cooperation, hear of church revitalizations. So um, it's really a joy to be able to be with you um, uh, sort of this morning. Um, Dan asked me to talk about some of the challenges of ministry um, in uh, the contemporary environment. About 18 months ago, I wrote a little book called Knowing Our Times, which I, I, I hope you've um, seen or maybe read, which just tries to locate where we are in the UK at the moment in terms of gospel ministry. I don't want to kind of, in a sense, regurgitate the book. That's not my um, uh, aim this morning. But um, in the two sessions that we've got, I want to look at the challenge of growing the church in the contemporary context. What I want to do is in the first session, I'm going to look primarily at the whole issue of evangelism and bringing the gospel to bear on our culture. And then in the second session, I want to look at the issue of discipleship, given people's patterns of lives today. So two areas that I think are key in church life, and that if I think we're going to pastor our churches well and grow them, we need to think about these issues and um, uh, help our ministry to be appropriately shaped to be able to uh, grow the church. So I'm hoping that what we will do will stimulate you to think about how the church can be more effective in evangelism and more effective in the challenge of um, discipleship. I want to say inevitably, um, speaking about topics like this, um, I'll I'll be talking in broad generalities. I think more and more as I visit churches and meet pastors, ministry has to be incredibly contextualised to particular situations. Um, So, in a sense, um, I'm going to talk in broad generalities, and you have to try to work out what of that is relevant to your situation. I hope that some of the things that I'm going to be describing you'll recognise. There'll be some ideas that hopefully might be useful to you, but you're in your context, and really what I'm hoping is that you'll take some of these ideas and you'll be able to think, how are they relevant to us and um, where we are? I'm not aiming on speaking for an hour and a half. I'm sure that kind of comes as some comfort to you. Um, I think it'd be helpful if we can do a little bit of work together in groups, thinking things through, uh, praying together, responding to what I've been said. So you can just begin to think at this stage, has it got relevance to us? So we'll do some things um, uh, in small groups. And I think um, you might want to think about whether it's best to do that in your church eldership group or with other people. I don't mind but it's whatever is most helpful to you as you think through some of the challenges um, that we're talking about. I'm happy to be interrupted along the way. Um, There'll be opportunities for uh, kind of questions um, that you might want um, uh, to ask. I haven't produced a handout, but if anybody wants it, I'm more than happy to email you my notes afterwards if they're helpful to you. So all you have to do is ask me, and I'll be more more than happy to to let you um, have them. Is that okay? Good. In that case, then, I want to start off with God's Word, and I'd like to take us to 1 Corinthians um, uh, chapter 1. We're going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 18, through to chapter 2, verse 5, as we think about this whole question of evangelism in the current uh, context. I'm sure um, familiar uh, words to us, there'll be a background to what I'm talking about rather than speaking about this particular passage in great detail. So from verse um, 18 of chapter 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Shall we pray, just so we begin our time together? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you so much for the mercy and grace that you've shown to us. Thank you for saving us through the message of the cross. Thank you for those who preached that message to us. And thank you for the privilege that we have of declaring that message to others. Father, we want to be those who are effective um, and faithful in proclaiming the glorious good news of what you've done for us through the Lord Jesus in our generation so that people might be saved. Please um, use this time to encourage us in the work of evangelism in our churches. Many Many of us are discouraged by slow growth by what feels like little progress. Um, We uh, sense the increased hostility to the gospel, and we want to ask and pray that you would help us to have confidence and to respond uh, wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, I want you to get thinking about this little issue, um, first of all. So in in your groups, whether churches or just with the people around you, a few moments, I'd like you to spend just a little bit of time just thinking um, about um, these questions. To what extent do you detect increasing or decreasing hostility to the gospel in our culture? To what extent do you detect increasing or decreasing um, hostility to the gospel in our culture? Okay? Then I want you to um, uh, sort of uh, think about the question, in your experience, what are people's main objections to the gospel in our culture? So the people that you're seeking to reach, the people you're coming into contact with, what are their main objections to um, the gospel? And then lastly, just to think, in your church context, thinking about people who've become Christians in the last couple of years, has there been any common pattern to how they've become Christians that you've observed? So detect um, uh, increasing or decreasing hostility. What are people's main objections? Have there been any patterns in the people that you've seen who've come to faith about how they've come to faith? 
Okay? We have five or six minutes just talking about those questions in your um, groups to kind of get us going. Okay. Good, well, I hope that's been helpful to kind of get you thinking um, about where we are. Let me um, sort of uh, begin to just sort of chart a little bit about how um, I, I, I think about where we are and then how we need to um, respond uh, to that. And I think um, in some ways the big picture is it seems to me there's a combination in our culture of kind of almost growing hostility but also growing openness at one and the same time. That both of those two things are happening simultaneously. So there are both threats and opportunities and I think one of the challenges for us is to keep our eyes focused on the opportunity and not to be overly intimidated by um, uh, the threat. So I think we see both growing hostility and um, uh, opportunity um, opening up for us. I don't know whether you um, picked this up uh, last uh, week, but I think it was early this week that Facebook apologised um, uh, in the light of a girl who'd committed suicide because of material that had been posted on Instagram, which Facebook um, uh, kind of owns. So there'd been material which had kind of given information about killing yourself, encouraging you to kill yourself. And Facebook felt that there was a public necessity to apologise for the way that they had contributed to her death. And, and that's just the kind of situation in which it's almost impossible to have any positive response to the circumstance of a person who has been influenced to the extent of taking um, their own uh, kind of life. Um, just before Christmas, the BBC put out a, a little kind of uh, video um, uh, uh, entitled Christian and Gay, which was considering the whole question of kind of sexuality and Christianity. Uh, to be fair, they interviewed some people who uh, would say that they were Christians who had come out as gay. Uh, they also interviewed one of the representatives from kind of Living Out, who gave a powerful testimony speaking to the experience of being um, a celibate Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, although um, his was very much a minority voice. But what was very striking um, uh, was the presence of a vicar who was talking about how he changed his position on sort of um, homosexuality because of a member of his congregation who had been struggling with same-sex issues and had committed suicide. And I think at one level that becomes something that is almost impossible to respond to um, uh, with a kind of um, argument, the pain and the reality of a person ending their life because of the perceived impact of the views of the Christian community. And that kind of argument is being used more and more in relation to the gospel and um, a, 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 an impression is being created that the gospel is fundamentally dangerous. Uh, Jane Auzan will use exactly the same arguments in relation to why Christians should change their views on homosexuality. Exactly the same arguments are used in relation to transgender, that if people are not allowed to transition, the result is that they will be induced to commit suicide. And I think one of the challenges for us here is that we within the Christian bubble, um, that's not a picture that resonates with us, that we might be people who are encouraging um, or causing others to take their own lives. But that increasingly is how our culture sees it. And one of the challenges for us is to get out of our own cultural bubble and to some extent try to appreciate how we're seen by the wider uh, culture um, uh, around us. We're living in, I think, uh, uh, unquestionably a post-Christian, secular, liberal and progressive society. Um, uh, and um, it's easy for us as Christians, again living primarily within our community, to lose sight of that reality. In our culture, we are a tiny minority. 
estimated that the number of evangelical Christians in the UK is about 3% of the population of 64 million. If you were to say Bible-believing Christians like us in churches like ours, the total numbers are probably about 160,000 people attending across the UK on an average Sunday, which amounts to about 0.3% of the population. So we are a tiny minority of a uh, minority. That's the reality of the cultural situation in which um, we find ourselves. Um, forgive me if I'm making an assumption here, but I'm making sort of an assumption today that kind of Oxford and the surrounding Oxford area is going to be particularly impacted by that kind of liberal progressive uh, kind of culture. Uh, this is not a universal cultural background. There are places in the country where that is absolutely not the mentality of the majority of people. But my guess is that in Oxford, given the presence of um, the intellectual elite, um, uh, I would imagine that this is quite a lot of the cultural background. I would imagine that in Oxford, The Guardian sells far more copies than the Daily Mail. I would imagine that people are reading The New Statesman rather than The Spectator. Um, I, I would imagine that people lis watch, listen to BBC rather than Channel 5. It's just that kind of, um, uh, uh, kind of culture. And I would imagine that many of the people that we're dealing with in the kind of 18 to 35-year-old um, age range, whether in our churches or evangelistically, are people who basically come from either the millennial generation or the snowflake generation. That's the people that we are actually engaging with um, in um, our churches. People who, in some ways, um, are incredibly sensitive um, and are potentially threatened uh, by the gospel message. And that's the cultural environment in which we're ministering. And I think the question is, how are we to respond to that? Which is really a question of how do we learn to contextualise and minister effectively in this particular situation? The gospel never changes, the context always changes. And therefore, the, um, I sense the art of effective gospel ministry is to work out how to bring the unchanging gospel to bear on a particular culture at a particular time. Many of us are not very good at doing that because basically we borrow all our patterns of ministry either from past heroes or from what we learnt when we were young. And um, we adopt methodologies that have worked in the past um, and we're less thoughtful about how to work, um, work out the eternal gospel in um, uh, the present. So um, that's the kind of the challenge of the situation that we're in. And I want um, to just make a number of observations that I think I hope might be helpful to us. Firstly, I think it's vital that we grasp, and 1 Corinthians reminds us of this, that every generation finds the gospel foolish. Every generation finds the gospel foolish. I think one of the mistakes that we make as Christians is we crave to be respectable. We crave to have respectability in society, respectability socially, respectability intellectually. We don't like being regarded as foolish. And actually that's because we don't feel foolish. We think we, think we are the wise. And we want to be regarded that, like that by everybody else. But the reality is the Bible tells us that the gospel will be regarded as foolish in every generation. In uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, Paul, speaking about his ministry, both the Greeks and the Jews that he's ministering to regarded the gospel as foolish. They both regarded the message about a crucified Messiah as a weak and foolish um, uh, message. The Greeks regarded the message of a resurrection from the dead as a weak and foolish message. After all, their great hope was, how can I escape the prison of the body? 
nothing was more foolish to them than the idea that actually the eternal destiny was to be re-resurrected with a body. It was ludicrous. Think of the way that um, uh, people responded to Paul in, um, when he was preaching in Athens. The message to them seemed crazy. Think of Paul um, speaking um, uh, in front of the king on trial at the end of the book of Acts where um, he preaches the gospel, the good news of the resurrection, and the king says to him, Paul, your learning is driving you out of your mind, making you insane. You're, you're a fool. So every generation finds the gospel foolish. But it seems to me when we look under the surface of that, um, this foolishness can go in two directions. For some, they see the gospel as foolish and irrelevant, and therefore their response to it is mockery. The gospel is foolish and irrelevant, and therefore the response is mockery. How could you possibly believe that? For others, they see the gospel as foolish and dangerous, and therefore it needs to be suppressed. So everybody views the culture views the gospel as foolish, but I think how that works out changes in different places. The gospel can be seen as foolish and irrelevant or foolish and dangerous. In fact, that's actually happening um, in the New Testament. We see exactly that. But for the Jews, they saw the gospel as foolish and dangerous. Um, if we look at the uh, persecution of Christians in the New Testament, the vast majority of persecution comes from the Jewish community. It's either instigated by the Jewish community or it's stirred up by the Jewish community. Why is that? Because the gospel threatens their very identity and existence. So therefore the Jewish response to the foolishness of the gospel is to seek to suppress it. That's why uh, Paul, of course, wanted to drag people off to prison. That's why Paul uh, was responsible or involved in the execution of large numbers of early Christians. The Jewish response was to want to stamp out this uh, kind of foolishness. Now, um, uh, for the Greeks and the Romans, it was different. For them, uh, Christianity was foolish um, uh, and irrelevant. In the main, they saw it as some very odd internal Jewish dispute affecting a very small group of people. They thought its message was ridiculous, but basically they simply saw it as a foolish phenomenon. So um, as we see uh, Paul and the early Christians being dragged before the courts, for example, between the sort of proconsul Gallio, um, and uh, you know, charges are brought against them, Basically, the courts dismiss it. This is just a, a petty Jewish internal squabble. <coughs> Nothing to do with arts. Now, you can begin to see notes in the New Testament at which that uh, foolish but irrelevant is beginning to move into foolish and dangerous. You see that, for example, in Ephesus, where the consequence of the gospel is a perceived threat to the trade of the silver merchants who are building the uh, kind of sort of take-home gift idols of the, uh, the temple um, of Artemis. And they kind of uh, riot. Their trade is threatened. And I think what you begin to see in the New Testament is the Roman authorities gradually waking up to the fact of the real threat that Christianity is. 
in its proclamation of Jesus as the one true king and God, not sort of Caesar as the one true king and God. So what was originally seen as foolish and irrelevant begins to suddenly be seen as a, a dangerous subversion as more people become attracted to it. You begin to get hints of that growing persecution in 1 Peter, and of course, obviously, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, it seems to be the hostility of the Roman authorities that's primarily in view. So the gospel is always regarded as foolish, but that foolishness can move in these two directions, depending on how confident the unbelieving community is. It can be foolish and irrelevant, therefore dismissed by mockery, or it's seen as foolish and dangerous, which then requires some measure of um, suppression. So we should expect the gospel to be seen as foolish, and it will be mocked or suppressed or both, depending on um, the cultural uh, context. And I think uh, as we look at our situation, uh, we can just see, I think, a growing awareness on the part of the wider society of what they perceive as being the dangerousness of the gospel. That is a note that is um, increasing, and therefore, to some extent, uh, it needs to be suppressed because uh, of its uh, potential um, impact. It is understood as a kind of radical, challenging people's identity, challenging even the shape of society. So I think every generation finds the gospel foolish, and I don't think we um, should be surprised by that um, at all. We need instead to be ready for it. Well, what are the implications of that? Well, despite what our culture thinks, we need to have confidence that the gospel really is God's wisdom, and the gospel really is God's power. I think the starting point of dealing with the challenges that we face in our culture is first and foremost our own confidence in the gospel. Both understanding how the culture sees it, but having confidence um, in what it really um, is. Now, I think that's, of course, vitally important for us as leaders. I think one of the challenges that we need to face is that it is also vitally important that our people have confidence in the gospel, that our people understand that the gospel, despite the fact that it's regarded as foolish, really is God's wisdom and God's power for salvation. And I think for many of us who are Christian leaders, we're not actually on the front line of the battle. We're most of our time in our study meeting with Christians, meeting with other meet leaders, pastoring other Christians. But our people are out there in that cultural front line day after day after day. And I think one of the challenges that we really face is ensuring that our own congregations have confidence in the gospel message. I think one of the uh, sort of challenges for us is the degree to which they are susceptible to doubt because of the cultural conflict in which they find themselves. And so therefore it is absolutely vital that we are equipping them to be confident in the gospel uh, kind of message. So every generation finds the gospel foolish. But then secondly, why is the gospel seen as dangerous in our generation? What is it about the gospel message that is prompting a greater hostility at a, at a wider cultural uh, level? So it's always been seen as foolish. Why is it now seen as dangerous? I think when I was first a Christian 30 years ago, it was basically seen as foolish. 
some of the things we were saying. Hasn't Christianity been disproved? Science has disproved God. How could anybody believe that? It was kind of just seen as slightly weird. But nobody was really saying it was kind of a dangerous belief. Whereas I think that that's become more and more the tone. What is it about the gospel that has led to that? Well, I think there are a number of um, uh, factors that are contributing to that. Um, Our culture sees the gospel as a fundamental attack on personal identity. At its heart, our culture sees the gospel as a fundamental attack on personal identity. And therefore, the gospel is perceived as psychologically harmful. Our culture sees the gospel message as, as a fundamental attack on personal freedom. And therefore the gospel is seen um, as being oppressive. At root, the gospel confronts the fundamental values and the root idols of our contemporary society. And I think one of the reasons for a growing hostility towards the gospel, particularly amongst those who are liberal and secular, is precisely that the gospel has not died out as they thought it would. The secular narrative was that religion is going to die. Actually what's happened is folk religion has died. What's died in our culture is safe Anglicanism that doesn't really have any meaning. A be nice Christianity that is actually innocuous and doesn't really offend anybody. That is almost totally collapsed and is dying. The result is that what is left is much more committed religion and much more committed Christianity. That is not the narrative that secularists thought would play out in culture. They assumed that religious belief would decline, diminish, disappear. And so I think there's a greater sense of threat because of um, the nature of the uh, religious uh, faith um, that is left. Um, And that's not just true in the UK, that's actually true worldwide. So they might put it in terms of the language of the growth of fundamentalism or extremism. What they actually mean is the growth of people who take their religion seriously. And that is way more threatening than uh, people for whom religion is just a safe cultural um, veneer. So what are the values of our contemporary culture that are so threatened by the gospel? How do we sum up our contemporary culture? Um, As I said, this is not universal, this is not everywhere, but my kind of best attempt to to try to crystallise it is that the kind of the contemporary view is that we as human beings are autonomous selves entitled to self-actualisation in order to achieve authenticity. We are autonomous selves entitled to self-actualization in order to achieve authenticity. Which basically boils down to you are entitled to be who you think you really are. Um, The idea of being an autonomous self is the idea that you have the right to define or discover yourself. 
the way you find your identity is basically looking inward. That's not established by kind of external rules or any objective truth about yourself or any cultural patterns that you have to conform to. You find yourself internally. And there's a divergence in our culture between those who think you find something that is really there or you simply create something. You make yourself or you discover yourself. But in the end, that is a personal, internal process that nobody has any right to interfere with. It's therefore inherently the case, isn't it, that any objective claim about what your identity is, is oppressive and threatening. Um, not only do you have the right to define yourself um, in the way that you wish, you have a right to live that out. That's the right, the entitlement to self-actualization. It's not enough for me to simply establish my identity. In order to be truly free, I have to live my identity. I have to be what I've discovered myself to be. And that's really the driving force behind an awful lot of the transgender movement, the um, LBGT uh, uh, sort of movement, the sort of the rights movement that says I'm entitled to express myself. <coughs> and again, therefore, any restriction on my ability to um, uh, self-actualize is a fundamental breach of my rights and is oppressive. And of course, it's oppressive to say that anybody else is not entitled to sort of, um, uh, in a sense, uh, self-actualize. And all this is then in the pursuit of being authentic. To be authentic is to live as I really am, to be who I, I really am. And I think that's the, um, uh, the way that our contemporary culture thinks. And when we understand that, that understands an awful lot of the opposition to the gospel and why people um, react the way that they do in our culture, why they find the gospel threatening um, and oppressive. Um, we live in a, a culture which in large measure has eliminated, for most people, the threat of physical harm. We've worked for centuries to eliminate physical harm. Uh, we've abolished the death penalty, we've abolished corporal punishment, We've kind of worked very hard to put in place kind of structures that minimise uh, physical harm. Most of us are not at physical risk. But where that has been eliminated, society focuses on psychological harm, which in their minds is just as serious as physical harm may have been in previous generations. And that's really where much of the snowflake generation thinking comes from. I have a right not to have myself threatened and harmed. Therefore, I have a right not even to hear that which uh, threatens my um, uh, kind of self. It is damaging to me even to have to listen to people with counter-opinions because that's attacking my very sense of self. In a sense, there is a, a vulnerability to the contemporary self and a desire to avoid um, a sort of psychological um, a harm. And I think that means that in our culture, the gospel message, if it's properly proclaimed as the objective truth about who Jesus is, who you are, 
uh, basically undermines that entire way of thinking and is an attack on it. The gospel declares you are not an autonomous self, you're a creature. The gospel declares you do not have a right to self-actualize, you're created to be righteous and in God's image. The uh, gospel declares that authenticity is basically following the Lord Jesus and living for him. In a way, it's a radically confrontational message to the um, uh, attitude of our culture. So I think when we understand that, we can begin to see why the gospel is heard as dangerous and oppressive in our particular cultural um, situation. Only once we've understood that can we begin to know how to respond to it. And I think the really crucial thing is we've just got to take seriously what our culture is thinking. We can't ignore it or dismiss it. Our temptation is to think that's stupid. Grow up a bit. Become a bit more robust. But we have to deal with the reality as it is, I think. So how do we respond to um, uh, this culture in which the gospel is seen as more uh, dangerous? Well, it's vital, I think, we try to understand our culture and not dismiss it. <coughs> and actually, the crucial thing here is that our goal is surely to win people to Christ, not simply to win some kind of culture war. Our goal is actually to win lost people to Jesus, not to win a culture war and not to simply vindicate ourselves. That's not our goal and that's not the task of our ministry. But it's absolutely vital in that context that we don't respond by changing the gospel message. That's the route that liberal Christianity has always taken, is that when um, cultural sensibilities make the gospel seem offensive, and in every generation the gospel will be eff offensive in some way, liberal Christianity says we need to change the message so it's no longer offensive. Actually, we see that battle going on at the moment, don't we, in the evangelical church, with those who want to say on issues of human sexuality, basically we've got to change orthodox biblical teaching because that is offensive and people won't listen to it. Win people by changing the message so that they're not offended by it. Well, that's not a biblical approach at all. That's neither honest um, nor biblically uh, faithful. We mustn't change... Um, the gospel um, uh, message. Instead, we need to kind of uh, recognise the um, sort of the challenge that the gospel is uh, going um, uh, to be. I think we need to sort of face up to um, the reality that the gospel will always be confrontational when we proclaim uh, Jesus um, uh, as Lord. And we need to both be ready for that ourselves, we need to prepare other people um, to uh, expect that. We need to understand why it is when we share the good news of uh, Jesus with people, when we begin to explain what it means for him to be, a, to be Lord, there will be those who react in a hostile way to that. Because it's in a sense, it's an attack on their very um, uh, self. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to, uh, in a sense, learn from that vulnerability that people have. The vulnerability of the contemporary self is actually an opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel. People are lost and struggling to find an identity which is stable. 
And so we need to find ways in which we can bring the gospel um, to bear on them. It reveals um, a deep uh, need in their, their hearts uh, and lives. And as I said, there's, a, 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 I think, a, a, a combination of growing hostility and growing openness. And the reason for that growing openness is because um, liberal society is failing to deliver what people want. So at one and the same time, there's a growing hostility, but there's also a growing questioning of um, uh, the liberal progressive agenda, which seems to have failed uh, to have delivered. Some interesting statistics and evidence coming out amongst the younger generation. A phenomenally high number have given up drinking alcohol altogether. Something like a third of people under 25 are teetotal, don't drink. All the evidence is people are having sort of significantly less sex than they ever had in previous generations. Now that may well be because of the rise of pornography, that's a possibility. But actually in terms of real human relationships, people are sort of not throwing themselves into the hedonistic lifestyle that they might have done in a previous generation. It, it's not satisfying, it's not meeting their deepest needs. There's a, an emerging Puritanism actually amongst the younger generation, which is a, re a rebellion and rejection of the kind of hedonistic lifestyle that's gone before. Every culture in the end ultimately reacts against what's gone before it. The millennial generation is deeply frustrated about life. The inability to be able to get stable jobs, buy homes, have children, have families. They feel economically cheated. So the liberal agenda that has been much lauded hasn't actually delivered for people. And that's where actually there is great gospel opportunity. So although there's the growing hostility, actually people need a stable identity, a sense of purpose and a meaning. And people are looking for that. So how should we respond? We need to understand our culture and then bring the gospel to a bear, to bear in an appropriate way, making the most of those opportunities, being sensitive um, uh, to the hostility. So thirdly, building on that, how do we commend the gospel in our generation? What does it begin to look like to contextualise the gospel where um, uh, we uh, kind of are? And these are some thoughts as to maybe what we need to do. It, it seems to me, first of all, the answer to the challenge is not first and foremost found in intellectual apologetics. First and foremost, it's not found in um, uh, intellectual apologetics. That, I think, has been a natural default of Christians. Um, we, we love to respond to the intellectual ideas, whether it's sort of postmodernism, progressivism, secularism, uh, whatever. We feel that the challenge to the gospel is primarily an intellectual challenge. And then we respond in the same way. And we assume that if we win the intellectual argument, then people will um, believe. We can invest vast amounts of energy in um, arguing um, in that way. Now I don't think that um, energy is unimportant. It is vital that we as the church learn how to critique and address um, uh, the sort of the wider intellectual atmosphere. But in terms of our evangelism I'm not sure it wins people over. I'm not sure I know many people who have been confronted with an intellectual apologetic argument and have suddenly gone, oh yes, of course, um, and uh, now I'm going to become a Christian. I think there's a danger of thinking that the problem is primarily people's worldview. 
and that if you simply get them to critique their worldview and see a different worldview, that will sort of persuade them. Worldview and personal identity are fundamentally different things, it seems to me. Worldview is rather abstract. Identity is intensely personal. So I'm not sure that uh, academic intellectual apologetics is um, the answer. That, it seems to me, is not what wins most people over. It's not how they become Christians. Having said that, it's often <coughs> vital to reassure the faith of those who are already believers. Ironically, I think the big tool of apologetics is, is as much as anything to assure the faith of those who are Christians already, who, as they live in the cultural environment, begin to find that their faith is challenged. There's a sense in which, actually, um, uh, when you're a Christian, the challenges multiply for you, I think, often. You come up against things that you've never thought about before. So, for example, I don't think the vast majority of non-Christians are sitting there thinking about the problems of genocide in the Old Testament. The people in your church who start reading their Bible are suddenly confronted with that issue. And it's likely to be threatening to their faith. Very often, I think, apologetics are defensive rather than offensive. They're actually essential to bolstering the confidence and faith of Christians. And in our churches, we need to do that work. We need to be aware of what are the doubts that our people are struggling with and how can we help them overcome them. That's an internal, um, it seems to me, um, kind of issue. But the answer for um, commending the gospel more widely is not just to be found in intellectual apologetics. Um, there is, however, of course, the need to preach the gospel. As I said, we mustn't change the gospel, but we do need to preach the gospel. That's the very heart of our ministry and our task, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and him uh, crucified. Yes, we need to preach that in, a t in an appropriate contextual way, but in the end, the methodology for the growth of the church is through the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. In all sorts of different contexts, whether that's in an individual con con conversation, a small group context, a church context, a street context, proclamation of Christ and the gospel message is um, uh, the way that we uh, commend the gospel. And we need to, in a sense, um, uh, make sure that we uh, proclaim the whole gospel, not just the parts of the gospel that are more attractive or less offensive. The gospel, in its very nature, is a warning of judgment to come for sin. It's a message of the offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ and his death and what he's done. It's the promise of hope for the future and eternal life beyond death. And it focuses on the person of the Lord Jesus. And that's the message that we need to be um, proclaiming. Now, I think one of the challenges for us is that the gospel uh, message addresses real needs that aren't often the felt needs that people have. So I think one of the uh, frustrations that we feel is that as we share the gospel with people, we think this is the most important message that they could possibly hear. It meets their real need. But they don't think that that is their real need. 
we're not in the situation of, for example, the medieval world in the Reformation where everybody was living with the question, uh, what's going to happen to me when I die? If you lived in a, the medieval world, you were basically surrounded by that in church, pictures, art, ceremonies, black death all around you. That was the question that you were asking. And then the great good news of the gospel and justification by faith comes as tremendous good news to a question you're asking. The problem in our culture is that isn't necessarily the question that people are asking. So for many people, I don't think they're even thinking about what happens after death. The prevailing mentality about death is death is either the end, in which case there's no point worrying about it, just get on with your bucket list, or if there is a God, he's kind of some divinely benevolent being and there'll be some wonderful afterlife afterwards. The numbers of people that are actually wrestling with any question of eternal judgment after death is minimal in my experience. Their cultural frame of reference is either it's the end so don't worry about it or it'll be fine. So the, one of the challenges is how do we bring the gospel to bear in a way that um, reveals to them their real needs? And I think we need to kind of find ways in which we um, are able to take the gospel, uh, uh, sort of connect with people's felt needs, but use that as a way of moving them to see their real needs. And so that's exactly what Paul does in Acts 17 when he comes to um, the uh, kind of Athenians. So we need to preach the gospel. Um, I think uh, on top of that, we need to work hard to proclaim and defend the goodness of the gospel. I suspect that's an area in which we need to particularly invest energy in the way that we um, uh, share the good news about the Lord Jesus. We need to um, proclaim the goodness um, of um, the gospel. And uh, you might think this is sort of um, ir ironic and the opposite of that, but I think part of the way that we do that is actually by making sure that we denounce all sin, not just selective sin. One of the ways we show the goodness of the gospel is by demonstrating that it addresses the full panoply of human sin and wickedness. The gospel takes wickedness and evil seriously and wants to see it defeated. That is in the essence of the goodness of um, the gospel. Um, uh, sin corrupts every aspect of human life. And I think one of the failings of evangelicalism and the failings of the way we present the gospel is sometimes we've been selective on the sins that we highlight. They tend to be individualistic and they tend to be sexual. Liberal progressive socialism or secularism has identified sins that sometimes evangelicals have not been willing to acknowledge. And it seems to me counterproductive not to simply acknowledge the reality of that sin. Where human beings have been mistreated, where they have been oppressed. It's right and proper that we should um, acknowledge that. Feminism has a point in the way that men have objectified and abused women over the generations. Uh, it's undoubtedly the case that white evangelicalism through history has been racist in its attitudes towards those from different cultures and different backgrounds. It's assumed a cultural privilege and superiority, a rather patronising approach to mission. 
It's doubtless the case that the rich and powerful have oppressed the poor. Some historical revisionism has a point. And yet how often Christians are heard to be basically people who are reactionary, who in the end defend the indefensible. Christians supported slavery. Some of our great heroes of the evangelical revivals were slave owners. I think it helps to be able to acknowledge that sin is sin. Some of the insights of um, uh, kind of liberal progressive secularism we need to say are spot on. Something like the kind of Me Too movement. It has identified real abuse of power and of others. And we need to say absolutely that is not acceptable, that is not um, uh, right human behaviour. That's exactly the kind of behaviour that the gospel is responding to. Uh, it was sort of some time ago that the kind of, there's a big campaign in Oxford about kind of removing the Rhodes statue. It, a reactionary response is to just want to get angry at that. It's just history. Um, uh, kind of let's kind of you know fight for maintaining our tradition. There's, there is an appropriate point for saying actually we are sometimes honouring those who behaved in appalling ways. And I think as Christians, we are the people who ought above all to understand that because of what the Bible reveals about our human hearts and the nature of a world under sin. We actually commend the gospel by showing a holistic um, hatred of sin and wickedness in all its forms. The goodness of the gospel is it actually addresses all of those concerns for justice that people have. Not just some of those concerns. Uh, alongside that, I think we need to recapture the blessings of Christianity in history. There is also a great story to tell of the history of the work of the gospel and how it has transformed cultures and lives. The goodness of the gospel is shown in the impact of the gospel uh, in society. Many of the things that are taken for, uh, for granted as being the benefits and blessings of contemporary Western society are actually deeply rooted in Christianity. Issues like uh, human rights, freedom, economic justice, they are results of the outworking of the gospel and people wanting to live righteous lives, wanting to correct uh, failings in society. In many ways, I think what's happened is that the secular environment has sought to, or sort of secular enlightenment sought to claim the benefits of Christianity as its own and write God out of the picture. That's just not historically um, accurate. And it's even more clear in the Roman world. Roman society was truly appalling in terms of its abuse, oppression, exploitation. It was the Christian communities who modelled an entirely new and different way of living, who transformed the uh, lot of slaves, children, women. There is a great story to tell there that to a culture that is saying Christianity is, is oppressive and restrictive, we need to say no. 
Look at what the gospel has done when it has borne fruit in um, uh, people's lives and in um, uh, kind of cultures. And in contrast to that, what does secular atheism do? Well, ironically, the great wickednesses of the 20th century, Nazism and communism, are the flowerings of godless secular uh, atheism. They're not the results of oppressive religion. They're the results of oppressive totalitarian irreligion. So I think we need to um, be able to recapture the blessings of Christianity in history, commending the goodness of the gospel. I just wonder whether that actually features in our apologetic. As we preach, as we teach, do we actually help people to know a little bit of the history of the blessing that the gospel has been at its best? Yes, we acknowledge the flaws, but actually there's a great story there to uh, tell, to encourage people. And if we don't do that, actually people in the pew will believe the cultural narrative that they hear all the rest of the time. We need to equip them to think differently and to challenge it. Alongside that, and uh, an outflowing of that, I think we need to recover the apologetic power of the church community. The apologetic power of the church community. And I think that actually is of huge and primary significance. In the end, the gospel is not just about personal salvation, although it is about that. The gospel is about God's plan to save a new people. It's about the creation of a new people. It's the creation of a new community. It's the creation of a new culture. In a sense, in the church, the community of the future of the new creation breaks into the present. It's where it's beginning to be realised. The church is hugely um, significant. The church, biblically, is meant to be a loving family. It's meant to be the place where you find unity in diversity, transcending divisions of race, class, nationality, gender, age, social status, wealth, physical attractiveness and economic usefulness. The church is meant to be that kind of um, a community. The church is meant to be the place where we pay particular honour to the poor and the marginalised. Particular honour to the weak in society who are not acknowledged. That's Paul's point in um, uh, kind of 1 Corinthians. God has deliberately chosen the weak and the insignificant to shame the strong. That's why there's so much emphasis in the Bible about care for orphans and widows within the Christian community. Those who were of no significance to wider society are cared for and valued and find an identity as those created in the image of God within the life of the church. Maybe in our context, that might be the elderly, that might be uh, refugees, that might be those who are disabled, that might be those who are physically unattractive. within the life of the church community. Um, I think that once you've been a Christian for some time, or even if you've uh, grown up in church, you very quickly lose perspective on how radical the church is. Actually, many of our churches are remarkably loving and accepting communities. 
for a wide diversity of people. We notice this some in our lives with our children. Uh, by being part of a church family, our children kind of have relationships with all sorts of people of all sorts of ages. It's interesting, their school friends know virtually nobody except their parents and people their own age. It's, kind of, it's completely different. And I think that uh, when you've been a Christian for some time and you've been part of a church community, basically you just suddenly start seeing all of the flaws. It's not as loving as you might want it to be. There are divisions um, uh, sort of uh, uh, at play. People are not totally united. You become, certainly as a church leader, more conscious of the difficult people who others are not looking after and not caring for. And you can lose perspective of how radically different it is from the wider world around. I'm struck so often by people who come into church who are not Christians, or people who are new Christians, and they find in the church a loving community that they've never experienced anywhere else. The best people to tell you what your church is really like are the newly converted who are just coming into it. They've got the least jaundiced perspective. And one of the key things you want to do is try to, in a sense, make sure the perspective doesn't become jaundiced. So, recover the apologetic power of the church community. The church is the backup that authenticates the gospel message that you preach. And that means to say we must labour to create truly loving, well-functioning church communities. Our ministry is not simply one of preaching good sermons, although that is important, if we are not also working at creating and sustaining that kind of loving community. It's a crucial part of our work as we uh, oversee the life of um, the local church. So as elders, as leaders, you need to kind of, in a sense, be mindful of how your church community is. Is it working well? Is it not working well? What could you do to improve it? Are you investing in the building of relationships and the creation of that culture within the life of the church? Because it's the advert um, for um, the gospel. And underlying some of those insights is just my observation of why is it that people become Christians? Why is it that people become Christians? Now, again, this is not universal. We talked a little bit about international students. It's perhaps very different there. It's different amongst Iranian asylum seekers and refugees. It might be different in uh, a kind of deprived working-class communities. But amongst those who are kind of reaching out to the relatively aspirant, relatively wealthy, um, kind of middle-class educated communities that most of us are probably ministering in, um, I find there are fairly common patterns to how people become Christians. One of the things I love doing as I visit churches is basically asking people on the door, how long have you been part of this church and how did you become a Christian? And for those who've been converted from a non-Christian background, the pattern is often remarkably similar for those who are above about 24. There are different dynamics at work with young people, students and ministry there, but for those beyond that stage, the pattern is remarkably similar. It's generally not because Christians have somehow or other at some point won the kind of cultural war with them. 
it's usually because of personal love and personal evangelism from Christians. That's been the usual um, dynamic. Most of them tell a story rather like this. I wasn't a Christian, but I had a friend who was a Christian. I got to know them over a period of time, and do you know, I thought there was something a bit different about their life. I could see that there was something there, and I found it intriguing. Uh, They began to start talking to me about Jesus, and initially I thought it was a bit odd. But, you know, I became interested. Um, They um, invited me along to church, and I didn't really want to go. I thought it was going to be really weird. And do you know what? I went to church, and actually they were really nice people. (laughs) And it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't formal. It wasn't cold. And I kind of found myself going back. I enjoyed listening to what was being taught, or maybe I, I joined a group because I wanted to investigate Christianity more. And you know, at some point, I realised I was a Christian. <laughs> and that is just, I would say, 90% of stories are some kind of variation on that sort of model of why it is that people came uh, to Christ. Uh, that's why I think it's so important in your churches and in your leadership, as people become Christians... You need to do the work of thinking, how did they become Christians? Why did they become Christians? Pick up the dynamics of what's bringing people to Christ in your particular um, context. But I think that is a fairly common pattern. And therefore, as church leaders, it means to say that we need to have, um, in a sense, confidence in the church community and confidence in the personal evangelism of our members. That's generally how the gospel is um, uh, growing. So we need to preach the gospel but commend the goodness of the gospel to show that it addresses all of human (coughs) sin and wickedness, to recapture something of the blessings that Christianity uh, brings about, demonstrable in history, recover the apologetic power of the church and see that flowing out through the personal love and evangelism (coughs) of um, our members. I think that basically is how in the New Testament, you see the local church working. Yes, of course, there are those who are set apart to be full-time evangelists and preachers. But once churches are established, it's the community that does the work of sharing the good news of the gospel, inviting people to come in to join the life of this new community, which is the people of the future. Um, Evangelism in our context our liberal, uh, progressive, secular context where there has been so much turning away from the Christian faith is slow. I think one of the uh, consequences of the culture we're in is that evangelism is becoming slower. People take longer from first contact with Christians to the point at which they become uh, kind of believers. Uh, We have to, uh, to some extent, in working with them, overcome their prejudice of what they uh, have been told or assumed Christians will be like. And they are influenced by watching the soap operas and the television dramas. And in the culture today, you you know it'll be the evangelical Christian who did it. The evangelical will always be the hypocrite, and he'll always be the one who has kind of got some deep hidden secret, or he's the one who did it. Uh, They buy into that. So there are prejudices to overcome, but it's when they encounter the reality of who we are that those prejudices are overcome. Realistically, across most churches, um, uh, they would experience, um, from our statistics and research, uh, a conversion rate of about 1% a year. 
you've got 100 people, it would be normal to see one person converted. Just on average. That, that average isn't quite true across the whole country. If you've got more young people and students, it'll be likely higher than that. But that's just the reality of the context in which we're in um, at uh, the moment. So there's the challenge of how we bring the gospel um, into our particular culture. We need to understand our context and then think about how we can make the most of the opportunities um, that that context um, presents. And I hope that's given you some thoughts to think about about your church, about the way you go about the work of um, evangelism, about the need to strengthen the confidence of the people in your church in um, the gospel. Now, does anybody want to ask, are there any questions you want to ask? Is there anything that comes out of that? that you it's a question in terms of a sort of historical figure, because actually if we, if we delve into any historical figure when we look hard enough, we're going to be able to find some element of, yeah. whether it's you know, racism that was commonly held yeah. in yeah. any sort of, and yet there are clearly some individuals where Absolutely. there are faults that are so glaring that we say, actually we've got to rethink. Yeah. And yet if we do that, we then dismiss, we can justifiably dismiss I think it, it, it's an honesty of both and. Um, actually, if we fall into just simply defence, we'll highlight all of the right things and not acknowledge. We, we, we kind of think they cancel each other out. I think we just need to be honest about sort of here was somebody living at a particular period and that was wrong. <laughs> um, it doesn't take away from the other things that they've done that have been right and good. And we're all imperfect and we're all flawed in various ways. But a, a kind of a, a defensiveness that thinks we've got to present everything as sort of somehow only positive and never to acknowledge the criticism is, is actually counterproductive, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Um, pretty helpful. Can you say a bit more about you know, how we, uh, you know, people have their felt needs, the gospel versus real needs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Say we're giving evangelists a talk. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think, um, and for example, people are struggling with the issue of identity. Who am I? Um, and actually, uh, that insecurity of the self and looking inside yourself to find that, that provides a point of contact. People are, are looking for an identity uh, kind of in their life, and we're proclaiming to them a secure identity that they can find that will help them discover who they really are. So that provides a way in into um, that situation. Um, again, in terms of evangelism, and we talk a bit about apathy and openness. I think for lots of people, most of the time, they're apathetic, they're not interested at all. We, we've noticed in our particular context, which is probably ministering mainly to people over 30 who are career successful, think life's going well. Actually, it's at moments of crises in life that they suddenly have a degree of openness. Crises all change. So it's often um, a kind of birth of a child which suddenly makes you reevaluate everything. It's breakdown of a relationship, it's divorce, it's death or bereavement that's experienced, it's serious illness, all the points at which the contemporary dream basically fall apart. Um, so at those points, there are very obvious needs that people have. And I think that we mustn't, we mustn't be too scared of being seen to be ambulance chasers, that we don't speak into those contexts because they are actually the moments of great openness in people's lives. And we need to make the most of those kind of opportunities. But we can only do that if we've built a genuine relationship with them over a period of time. And so you get to know people, you're with them, and then a moment of opportunity opens up. 
And then I think some of those experiences, what, what they are is they're experiences of fear, anxiety, security. We always say those are natural fears. Now, actually, some of you want to say there are bigger things you should be fearing even than the thing you're fearing. And Jesus is able to deal with all of that. really obvious with the relatively small minority who've got a kind of uh, minority sexual identity. Yeah, yeah. What about your kind of normal people? Mm-hmm. Is, is, are they feeling that same thing as well, or is, are they less aware of that? <coughs> okay. Um, I think everybody has an entitlement to be themselves, and so therefore that will shape the way that they behave, the way that they act, the values that they have. Um, and it's really more fear of any restriction that would stop them doing that. So actually, for most people in our culture, they have immense freedom to live as they believe is right, um, but they fear having that taken away from them. I think that's, that, that's their fear um, about the gospel. Um, and actually, one of the things, again, to be careful there in the way that we deal with this is, is that we can easily fall into advocating for essentially Christian privilege rather than freedom for others. When we, when we do that, we're heard to want to oppress. And I, th- I think we just have to sort of, in a sense, in, a, in a, a pluralistic culture, just be more aware of sometimes standing for the rights of others that we value ourselves, not just seeing them as privileges um, for us. Um, but, uh, so I mean the classic examples would be things like divorce, breakdown of relationships, people might think, well, actually, I need to get out of this relationship in order to be truly myself. Does that make any sense? And so then you have a debate about easy divorce or not. What we're then heard to be saying is, no, you can't really be yourself. We want to stick you in that. Now, I'm not saying there's an easy answer to that, because there are, of course, societal benefits to helping relationships hold together. But that's an example that impacts on people who aren't struggling with issues, say, for example, of sexual identity. The numbers of people who are divorced now are incredibly high as a percentage of those who are married. So that's a very real issue for quite a lot of people. Dan. Yeah. Um, a couple of thoughts that would go with that. I think that um, my observation is that, again, outside of certain contexts, like the university context is very different, um, but for ordinary people who are not in that sort of world, uh, events are only effective in that they are the culmination of relationships that have been built. Um, I think events have an, a place in the life of the church because what they actually do is they keep giving people something to aim for in their relationships. So um, the reason you have events is not because you necessarily think events are going to be massively fruitful, but basically because events keep evangelism on the agenda. And there are means by which people are being encouraged to think about how do I connect with my friends and make my friendships more than just a friendship and see it as a way in which I'm wanting to share the gospel. And the event becomes a way of crystallising that focus. But in most cases, people don't People won't come to events if they haven't got the relationship in place already. So I think events serve 
the bigger picture of building relationships and sharing your relationships in the main. Uh, there may gloriously be the person who comes on the off chance, and, the, and that's the problem with all of these things. You find the abnormal <coughs> sort of situation of the person who pitches up in church, hears one sermon and comes and tells you they want to be baptised next week because they're a believer. And amazing that God works like that. But I don't think you can plan a strategy on that basis. God will work in those ways, but the same may be true with events, but actually the main way that events work is they provide a focus for the sustained relational evangelism that the church is, is, is engaged in. So basically, I, 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 my experience in evangelism is if you plan nothing, nothing will happen. If you plan lots, often it won't be through the things you plan that evangelism happens, but somehow stuff happens. Does that make any sense? So do nothing, you can almost guarantee you get nothing. Do something, and the, the thing might not be the thing itself, but actually somehow, because people are then thinking about evangelism, praying about evangelism, stuff happens that you don't expect. Um, and you've got to think long term. I was, I was at a church plant in um, uh, kind of Hamill Hempstead a couple of weeks ago. Um, they leafleted an area when they started their church plant and saw nothing from it. And then kind of four years later, a couple of people pitched up and said, we remember getting your leaflet, which you, just, you don't expect. Um, so sometimes there's long-term fruitfulness from initiatives that don't bear much at the time, but actually may have a longer-term impact. Yeah. Um, agree our churches could be loving and welcoming communities, uh, but also for those who are a little bit more marginalised, they can come across as quite intimidated, a little well-supported, yeah, yeah. um, difficult places to come into. How do we address that and make them more widely? <coughs> I think we've got to address the church culture if we're a group of people who've come together because we're sorted and put a brave face on life. Actually, all the people who are sorted or look sorted in church basically aren't. Uh, most of us as pastors know that in terms of what's going on, on in the heart. So a degree of openness and vulnerability. So um, uh, in a sense, providing a loving community doesn't mean putting on a show. It actually means being sort of real in, in, our, in our relationships. So I think, I think we just have to encourage that within the life of the church. Um, it, it, partly it's modelled in things like how we pray for people. It's modelled in the testimonies that we use in church and how we give people opportunity to speak about themselves and what's going on in their lives. So I think that can be really carefully chosen opportunities for people to talk about what's going on. It just signals something to a congregation um, uh, kind of uh, as a whole. So church is a carefully coordinated performance in which everything is always done well actually don't necessarily get the opportunities for doing that. And I think we need to find ways of building that into the life of the church. Um, yeah. Um, we want our people to be the church of the family, and that's through relationships. Yeah. Um, have you got any comments on how we, you said we spend a lot of our time in church Yeah. I think that's a difficult question because I think actually for many of us who are pastors and leaders, we have least opportunity to engage with people who are non-Christians, both in time and context. Um, so for most people, their primary mission field is the workplace. That's where they spend most time. They're pushed together with people that they haven't chosen and they're in that situation. And we have to make much more effort to find contexts in which we can do that. So um, inevitably, we will 
not have as much opportunity as congregations will have. Um, we need to, in a sense, look at our lives and either think where are the natural opportunities that we can be investing, or if we have none, what are the things that we could take up that in, in some small scale in our life will mean that we are at least on the front line and experiencing what the front line is like. Um, but I don't think it, if you're leading a church and your primary task is being a pastor of the congregation, I don't think that you can make that the big element of what you're doing. You need, you need to do some in order to keep in touch and understand your congregation. Um, but you've got to be realistic about what the primary responsibilities of ministry um, uh, kind of are. There we are. I think it's probably coffee time, isn't it? Why don't you just, in your groups, keep, do you just want to pray together for a moment? That'd be a good thing to do. Just a couple of minutes praying in maybe some of those things that you've learned and then we'll have coffee.